0: Welcome to Food Bites with Sarah Patterson and Kevin Hillier. Proudly brought to you by Cheese Links, bringing cheese and yogurt making to your kitchen. CheeseLinks.com.au
1: It's that wonderful time of the year and of the week. It's Food Bites with Sarah Patterson. My name's Kevin Hillier. Your name's Sarah Patterson.
2: The time of the week that I a get to sit in a studio time opposite of you. The year. That's wonderful, but we won't spoil it with Kevin singing. No, we won't. We have a much better singer and lined Can we up.
1: stop spoiling uh, all our shopping experiences by playing <laughs> bloody carols? <laughs> doing your head in. Oh, you need to break it up. You know, every time you go to the supermarket, you don't want to hear carols every time. Mm, no. It's
2: the the Wham song that you've got to avoid in the... uh there's a lot shopping of songs centers. you've got to
1: avoid in the shopping centres. Trust me, a lot of songs. Don't avoid Cheeselinks, though. At <laughs> cheeselinks.com.au. Uh, you know, get, get a gift. Uh, any time of the year is a good time to give a gift voucher to get a workshop with Janet and the team at uh, Cheese Links to come and show you how to make your own cheese.
2: Absolutely. It's easier than you think. You can also purchase a yoghurt maker through uh, Links,
1: Which <laughs> means you can put all your own stuff in it.
2: <laughs> That's right. Or well, just have a look at all the equipment on the, uh, the website to get you on your journey Towards making cheese.
1: It's 52821984. A really,
2: really satisfying pursuit, Kevin, as you know. Yes, it is. It's good fun. Good fun.
1: Now, uh, our guest this week, and this is, a, we want to pre warn you this is a very long interview mm. because this man had an incredibly long career.
2: He's an absolute legend. Yes. Of Australian entertainment. Uh, yeah, he's
1: an icon of the Australian music and entertainment industry, no doubt about and it. And
2: plenty of stories to tell.
1: And he tells lots in this uh, very uh, longer-than-normal interview that we've had with Kamal, one of the one of the all-time greats. So uh, let's uh, sit back so it's not muck around. No more talk from us. Have a listen to us talking to Kamal.
0: You're listening to Food Bites with Sarah Patterson and Kevin Hillier. Hello,
2: Hello Kamal, Kamal by the way. Nice to meet you.
3: <laughs> hey, hey, mate.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> uh, why are people so unkind, anyway. <laughs> uh...
1: Hello, and thank you so much for uh, for doing our podcast. We really appreciate it. That's
3: the least I could do.
2: Kamal, you were born and spent your early life in uh, Malaysia, so I think that's a pretty good place to start for a food podcast. What are your memories of the food you ate in your family dinners growing up?
3: Mm-hmm. Well, growing up depends, you know, because I was born in 1934, soon after uh, there was a war, the Japanese invaded Malaysia, and during that time, the food contained of rice, uh, tapioca, uh, a few grains, uh, but, you know, there was not much variety at all, and for Three almost four years, which was it was mundane food. And once the Japanese left there, uh, we began to get the regular food. But the irony of it was, I never thought the time would come where I would enjoy Japanese food. And uh, it took a bit of a bit of getting used to. It. But now, um, I have Japanese maybe two three times a day if I can afford it.
2: What oh, wow. what kind of Japanese food?
3: I like sashimi, um, meaning uh, in Japanese it's called hamachi, kingfish, I think. I, I like the, the, the taste of kingfish because in 1982 I was in Honolulu and I was at the Monarch Room. I was there for three months and the music uh, director, Uh, who was married to a Japanese lady. And every night after the show, we would go to their favorite uh, Japanese restaurant and uh, try various Japanese meals. And and I got educated. Uh, My palate became more... Uh, was able to discriminate between good and not so good Japanese food. <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> when you ended up coming uh, to Australia, to Adelaide at first, was that a, a bit of a shock to the senses then in, terms of in, in, a, um, in the sense of your palate? Did you have to get used to something totally different to what you were used to?
3: Well, you're not going to believe this. For the first almost three years, I lived on raw eggs and milk, uh, cake, Uh, bread uh, because um, I didn't like uh, the Australian food and went to the local milk bar. I always had uh, milkshakes uh, with eggs or two or three eggs. I prefer to uh, swallow the eggs raw. This was because, wait a minute, I'll tell you why. Because when my older sister came of age, if you know what I mean, and she was... uh, Given special food and and some of it included raw eggs, so I thought it was good for the goose, good for the gander, you know. So okay. so so when I came to Australia till I got used to you know, the regular meals, I leaned on uh, on raw eggs quite a bit. I mean, actually, you know, in fact, a lot of athletes have raw eggs. If we, the still on the Rocky movie, I mean. Uh, they, they used to treat themselves to a lot of rowing. So.
2: Goodness, and you never felt tempted to make what we would call an egg flip, so put it actually through those milkshakes. You preferred to have it on its own.
3: No, I never flipped.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> but little by little, uh, I got used to uh, Australian food. But talking about that, there was a home that I went to in Adelaide Because the daughter of the family, the Newton family, she was a harpist. Uh, For whatever reason, she invited me to her home. I mean, she had a boyfriend and all that. But I went there, and the the Stan and Gladys Newton. So it was roast on Sundays, and I managed to eat a little bit of it. But the interesting thing was, each time I went back to put my jacket on after the lunch, uh, there would be either a five- or ten-pound note in it so i never I never missed a lunch for a couple of years,
4: <laughs>
3: <laughs> but the irrational generosity of some of the people in Adelaide was just amazing and without wanting to drop names, the gentleman I met and his wife I met in December of nineteen fifty eight you might know him. you might have heard of him because he was born, i think in Melbourne. his name is Rupert Murdoch.
1: Oh, you've heard of him yes. yeah. <laughs>
3: Okay. Yeah. And I met him in 1958. And it was uh, more than serendipitous. I mean, it was almost a miracle because it was through that meeting that I was able to continue to stay in Australia. Otherwise, I might have been deported. Anyway, you won't believe this. From nineteen, late 1962 to early 65, uh, I stayed with them. I was a house guest. Oh, wow.
2: Of the Murdoch's,
3: yeah. yes, but some people thought I was their gardener.
1: Oh goodness <laughs> me! <my>. Oh, gee <laughs> But I was,
3: but I was in the garden, which made, which for well, some of them made them think I was a gardener. But I was uh, a regular guest, and uh, the, the young crew would have been about five or six years of age. Now uh, she's, um, I, I don't think she's a grandmother, but she's the mother of three children, I think.
1: Yeah. Uh. Hey, come yes. What's your what's your what's your prowess like in the kitchen? Are you a, are you a good cook, or do you cook at all? Or
3: no, I mean, I have a an unbelievably good cook uh, in my wife. Even though at, at present uh, she's cooking in a different kitchen to what she used to, but uh, I still get my lamb shanks every every second week. But I mean, she she her Indian cuisine. In fact, friends try to make her write a book about where, in fact, they even made covers and everything else prepared for her to publish a book, but she was reluctant to uh, put her name to any of the recipes, but her curries were uh, uh, unbelievable. In fact, uh, uh, her cooking is legend, actually.
2: Kamal, um, you've had some tumultuous times throughout your life, and you have been... Featured prominently in the media of late, and I I understand one of your mottos in life is a bit of a food analogy itself. Is that when life hands you lemons, you make lemonade?
3: Yeah, you know I have an orchard of lemons, and but a factory of lemonade. <laughs> in other words, you know that life actually uh, put it this way, without getting too too dark into it. I mean, it, you know when you when you're born black, it is a lemon. It because whether you like it or not, it is uh, it's a white man's world or a white person's world because that's the way we have we have, we were perceived to believe uh, white is better. The only uh, and, and the only time black is good is at the end of the, your bank statement. Mm-hmm. Is black is good, but uh, but that's the way it is, you know. And then I I grew up believing that um, if you were black, you were second rate. But to illustrate the point without getting too morbid about it, in India right now, there are 200 million untouchables, 200 million untouchables. I mean, that's beyond color. So we have these sort of prejudices built on the ignorance, you know, you know, you know what I mean? they yeah. mm. The best illustration is, let's say you get, you know, a habitat dozen eggs of each of a different colour. They all look different. When you break them, the yolk is the same. Mm. And it's no yolk.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And Kamala, I I know you have talked at length about this uh, subject, but if I I may, talking about your 60 odd years um, in television here and recently the um, Hey Hey It's Saturday 50th anniversary special and, you know, you, your your absence from that was widely uh, noted. Do you look back on those days and think that uh, you were a victim perhaps of tall poppy syndrome?
3: Uh, yeah, well, definitely a tall poppy syndrome and a black tall poppy makes it even worse. Let me try and explain to you without thinking, because uh, it all began with Gavin Disney, uh, who used to host a show in Bendigo, I think, and I used to go there and do a, a whole show. You know, I, I went I, I, anywhere and everywhere in, in Australia, particularly Victoria, because Victoria really gave me my break, because it gave me Santa Goodbye. And then in 1970, I, I had a miraculous uh, brainwave uh, because uh, i was i had recorded a song called all i have to offer you which i actually stole from charlie pride it was his song but i managed to convince the producer to pretend uh, his, his record was not anywhere in the building so we hit it and then we released ours except They couldn't play because, as you may or may not remember, there was an industrial dispute where the Commonwealth records were not being played in Australia, Yep. only American records. So as a result, all I have to offer you is me never got any offering. But anyway, while I was there in the St. Kilda Lodge, we'd been moping and being very depressed, a knock on the door, and three lovely ladies, came in France. He said, Kamal, you don't look very happy. I said, I'm not happy at all. Why? And I said, you know, I can't get the record played. I'll put it on television. And a remark like that frustrated me in no end because, you know, how could I with with no money whatsoever afford any television promotion? And I couldn't wait to see the back of them. And But before leaving, they said, we promote our, our product on uh, the BP." Picker box, uh, the Bob Dyer and Dolly, Dolly Dyer, and the BP uh, picker box. So, with the, uh, as they left, I went to the, to the window and to see the rain falling. In the distance, I could see a BP shine. And I picked up the phone and picked up a uh, uh, dialed and a man called Rod Taylor, not the actor. Uh, Rod Taylor and I, uh, came up and he said, What can I do for you? I told him my name. He wasn't at all impressed. And we chatted for a while. I said, look, I've got some songs that I've got already recorded and some all I will add to it. I will give this album to you. I don't want a single penny. Put it on your, you know, on your counter. And when you sell it, if you make money, give it to your favorite charity, you know. Don't have to even mention my name on it. And he said, oh, come on, we got ideas like this all along St. Kilda Road, you know, with several buildings full of it. Thank you, but no, thank you. And he hung up on me. About twenty minutes later, he called back. He said, Did "You come out again?" I said, "Yeah." He said, "I know you are at the, in, uh, the travel lodge. I'll come and have a cup of coffee, coffee with you because I'm, I'm on my way to uh, Port Moresby." So we chatted. So and he said, "What's your idea?" So I said, "So, cut a long story short. Come first week of December, and the album is called Peace on Earth." And I did my own commercial because there was a song called The World the Way I Want It. So I simply said to the camera, you know, we would would like to have the world the way we want it, but we can't. The least we can help is uh, through peace on earth and do what you can. That's something like that. And uh, when when 8,000 or 10,000 was the gold record, the first week in December 1970, uh, they sold 135,000 albums and they couldn't print anymore. It was a bizarre idea, you know. Uh, that was when I, I was given a lemon. I made one yeah. hell of a lot of lemonade.
1: <laughs> well, uh, I, now I don't want to be indulgent here, but my parents owned a BP service station in Onogra in Brisbane in 1970, <laughs> and and my first... Uh, I guess uh, Seeing You was that album was on the on the next to the cash register and I'm going what are we doing selling bloody albums here and dad said oh this is a BP promotion that's what we're doing and then my mum and dad actually went to a big showcase uh, sort of concert that you did in Brisbane and uh, my mother and father were the greatest we had Kamal we had peace on earth playing in our <laughs> Christmas for the next 15 years
3: Let me let, uh, let me ask you a silly question did you have any peace
1: at all? <laughs> <laughs> <None>. <laughs> not
3: not from you at that stage, Kamal. These sort of bizarre harebrained ideas, here, have every once in a while has worked. I mean, Carnegie Hall was one of them. You know, mm-hmm. I did it twice. And the London Palladium. Let me tell you about the Carnegie Hall in here Saturday.
4: Mm.
3: Are you ready for this? Yep. yep. <laughs> Fashion seatbelts. But anyway, what happened was um, I had done my first concert at Carnegie Hall in 1976 and then the second one in 84. About two mm-hmm. weeks before it, I was invited to Martin Place in Sydney to send a text of fax to anybody in the world, right? Mm-hmm. So I had the uh, fax address for Bob Hope, and I knew he was going to be there on the Thursday before my show on this, on this Friday. So I sent a fax to Bob, I said, Bob, I know you're going to be at the uh, Carnegie Hall raising money for the whole of the New York Zoo, but do you mind very much staying over one more night? And he said, why not? So he came over and uh, spent 10 minutes doing a spot and then introduced me. And by the way, in the audience, there were three young children, and all three of them are billionaires now. Oh, wow. They're the Murdoch children. Mm. (laughs) There was Elizabeth Lockwood and James. And anyway, to promote this uh, concert, the week before I was there on Hey Hey, and I tried to tell Daryl, uh, you know, how important it was, and all they could do was to make sure I was hitting the face with the white powder, mm. and uh, do I need to say any more? No.
2: Just in, in light of, of, of these sort of things, Kamal, when you look back, how important to you and at the age you're at now, is forgiveness.
3: No, you, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, forgive, I, I forgive. I mean, I can't forget, meaning it is hard to forget. But I've I forgiven, you know. I mean, the thing is, I, uh, I have already often said that, you know, Daryl is a very talented uh, individual, but... I the the I've never in fact I wrote an open letter at the end of it, yeah. and I said, you know, would you have treated anybody else?" But I didn't really ask him. Why couldn't he make an effort to promote the show, uh, especially with Bob Hope? I mean, you know, if I had to pay him, it would have been forty thousand dollars to get Bob on a stage anywhere at that time.
2: May I ask, given, um, going back to the, the 50th anniversary special, and, and obviously there are some incidents that, um, that were, were hurtful and humiliating for you, why then were you, uh, it seemed, so keen to be a part of the 50th celebrations?
3: No, no, I didn't, no, 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 you misunderstand me. I didn't get an invite. Apparently they, they assured me for half a, half a second.
2: Had you been invited to attend the celebration, would you have said Yes.
3: Uh, yeah, of course, you know, any publicity is is good publicity. (laughs) Maybe there is such a thing as bad publicity. But what you may not know was that when Harry Connick Jr. was there and the whole thing was, uh, you know, uh, turned up again, uh, the next day, Channel 7 knocked at my door. And they said, uh, we want to talk to you about the last night say, hey, what do you think of it? I said, I didn't see, actually see the show. I said, what do you mean? Uh, so they said, do you think the hey, hey is racist? I said, frankly speaking, I am more racist than they are, really. Because I married an Indian uh, in Malaysia. Uh, an Indian is called second-rate compared to a Sri Lankan. Uh, this There are reasons for it. I won't go into it now, but I'm a racist. I was, you know, I'm a very conscious of being black. My, my prejudices is, is there, and I'm overcoming it every day. Mm-hmm. So they spent 20 minutes trying to get me to say uh, uh. Hey Hey was racist.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And he and the journalist gave up. Mm-hmm. And the way out, he got into the car. He was in the driver. He was on the passenger seat. He won the window down and said, hey, come out. Uh, you're going to sue Channel 9? I said, what a great idea. <laughs> Next day, it was front page. The Kamal Sous channel. 9, oh. that, that's the genesis of all of this. Yeah. But nobody talks about what the, the, the this particular aspect of it. This is why even my wife said to me, uh, you're a hypocrite because he, he helped, helped you. I mean, she believes uh, all of the negative publicity or whatever, was helped me. But even she thought she misunderstood what really happened, you know, because the 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 journalist, whoever wrote the story, was not exactly what I said, yeah. you know. But he never reported the actual conversation in my house on that on that morning. Yep. Have we talked about food at all? Yeah, we have. Well, f-
2: I was going to say, speaking of food, well, it's more about drinks and beverages. You were well-known, Kamal, some years back for your your front and centre in a commercial for Dilmar tea. And I just wondered whether your beverage of choice is tea, coffee these days, or something else?
3: No, uh, all of the above, you know, all of the above. But I tend to lean on coffee more than anything else. Why, I don't know. I, you know, I'm really lazy. In fact, I, there, there could be a whole lot of other drinks that is more tasty and more beneficial. But, uh, but as for the Dilma, it was uh, it was a bittersweet experience. When I say that I went out of my way to promote it, I even sent the tea to Sir Donald Bradman, to the Dutch Queen, uh, you know, and then to the president. But uh but they did not respond in kind. They were not as generous in their response. But as a result, um, we discontinued for you know shortly afterwards. And for their 25th anniversary, uh, they invited me, and uh, again I got done. <laughs> but in fact, I had the rights to the to the commercial, and I gave it to them for a song.
1: You'll forgive the pun. Okay. Right. <laughs> now well, uh, we we had a conversation about this a couple of days ago when I mentioned this question to you that we love to ask on this podcast, and that's the dinner party guest you would like to have any anybody you like, get her alive. Um, you're shouting, so keep that in mind. Uh,
3: okay. Who, who
1: would who would be on your table, Kamal?
3: Well, are you familiar with a man called Neil deGrasse
2: Tyson? Rings a bell.
3: Okay. Neil deGrasse Tyson. Could be African American, but but he's absolutely brilliant. Uh, I think as a dinner guest, I mean, he could chat for one week without taking a breath. I mean, on all subjects, on all subjects, and uh, in not only science but common sense. I mean, he teach every day. Every time you learn, you listen to him, you learn something new. Neil deGrasse Tyson. And uh, can I have four guests?
2: Yes, yeah, you yeah, can, absolutely. of course.
3: Okay, I, I I think I will have two ladies. One is Ava Gardner.
2: Oh yes,
3: and Audrey Hepburn. Oh, and uh, on the on the fourth person is the one I went Gaga over in uh, two thousand and eight when uh, I saw a book. Uh, I bought a book called The Audacity of Hope. When I picked it up, I said, No white man would ever think of a title with the audacity of hope. Can you explain to me why you think I thought that?
4: Now I am get why you explain.
3: <laughs> why wouldn't a white man write a book and call it The Audacity of Hope? Because hope is the prerogative of a white person. Hmm. They are born with hope. Yep. They yep. don't have to be audacious to dare to say or do things, the right thing. And that was my knee-jerk reaction. And, uh, yeah, I, you know, I'm a mixed-up boy.
1: So who's the author of that book?
3: Barack Obama. Barack Obama there, you ah, go. there you go. So now you won't believe it. Three years later, 2011, uh, I had I met him and had done a dinner with him. Really? And then eventually, I uh, I got I got to so Gaga. I even recorded the Gettysburg Address <laughs> as a as a as a tribute to him.
2: That is wonderful.
3: And, uh, it's it's on YouTube, and yep. my friend wrote the music. And uh, it's one of the things I'm deeply proud of. It, it, it won a few awards, but it never got, it, it wasn't seen, you know. Yeah. Uh,
1: hey, but I've yeah. got to ask you, Kamal, your your voice has, has got as much richness and fullness and uh, and uh, umpire in it the, now as it's ever had. You're 87 years of age. Has there ever been anything that you've done to, to uh, you know, keep your voice in such beautiful nick over the
3: years? Yeah, the surgeon cut my throat.
1: Oh. Sorry?
3: <laughs> <laughs> you heard it right. I, my, my throat was cut in half like a chicken, and they take, took out all the parts that didn't apply. That's what the surgeon told me when I asked him, what would happen to me after you operate? He said, oh, will you open your neck like a chicken and take out all the parts that don't apply and sew you back?
2: How long and ago was this, Kamal?
3: 2003. Wow. As far as the, the, the voice itself is concerned, I, I I'll, Okay, I'll be as honest with you as I can. From 1953 to 1960, I imitated Nat King Cole. I crooned like Nat King Cole. Although when I first heard him, I thought the man had a sore throat. Is that
2: a nature boy? Really,
3: yeah, exactly. I bought one of his albums and it said it was the velvet voice. So I realized, I mean, I learned to appreciate his kind of voice is silk smooth, right? Okay. Mm. Yeah. And then in 1960, while listening to the radio, I heard a voice and I thought, this is going to be a, an animal in the jungle, a bear or something like that. And his name was Paul Robeson. So I was confused. I said, how can somebody make a noise like that? So I started experimenting in a, in a playing field or wherever nobody could hear me. I would make noises like, or try to make noises like Robeson. And uh, so, along the process, in 1959, I instead of being deported, I had to attend the conservatorium. So I had singing lessons, but I didn't pay much attention to the lessons itself. I went and did my own way of, you know, I would yell, shout, just make noises. It sounds like a bear, or you know, I mean. But the irony of it was in 1995 when my book. An Impossible Dream was launched. And, oh, by the way, uh, Rupert Murdoch's sister, Helen, was <laughs> there. She's no longer with us. And she bought two dozen books to give her friends. She was my, if not my number one friend. <laughs> and her mother was number two. But anyway, when Dame Elizabeth for her 90th birthday, she wrote to me and said, "Kamal, I'm going to have my 90th birthday. they are going to be about 500 ladies. If you don't mind the company of five hundred late, come and sing for it. Oh wow. So sure. I went and I, I went and sang for her at Cruden Farm. And then for her hundredth birthday, they wanted to sort of upgrade the thing. So they decided they would do something very special. They had the birthday at the Dame Elizabeth Hall in in okay. And and they had an overseas artist, Jose Carreras at <laughs> great expense. They had to fly him over. And Dame Elizabeth's brother in law Jeff Hanbury told me, when the Correa starts singing, Dame Elizabeth went to
4: sleep.
3: <laughs> 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 but, but, you know, I got to tell you that I never, never, ever believed that I would have such a friend in Dame Elizabeth. We, we, go on. Eat, 102, I still had lunch with her. Yeah.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Wow. The kind of things that have happened, you know, like the, uh, I, I can't begin to tell you. The, 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 some of it was serendipitous and the, some of it was, in fact, this line, why are people so camp Bert started it, did you know? Yeah. No. Yeah.
2: <laughs> always, always just attributed it to uh, to the hey-hey days. No,
3: no, 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 no. The, hey-hey, you served it. But mm. what happened was in 1975, I did the show with Bob Hope, you know, which was shown all over the world. The song I found the year before was called What Would I Do Without My Music. I heard it in New York on the 13th of November, 1977, my birthday. And when I heard it, like 2 o'clock in the morning, I cried. It was so beautiful. It made me think of Schubert. And I got all emotional about it. And I listened to it about half a dozen times. And then I got picky. And I stopped crying. And the second line was, Why are people's eyes so blind? I said no, I don't like that light. So I took the lead line off, <laughs> and I put wire, a on guy without telling the composure. All right. And I'm still waiting for the guy to sue me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's a wonderful story. Yeah. <laughs> Do you feel Kamal that you um, on that subject that you would just like to have some resolution?
3: Oh, look, there is no real solution because I think what it was it was called coffee. You know, and 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 add to it was it was black. I mean, you know, uh, that's the problem.
4: You
3: know, mm. you know, somewhere along the way, for one reason or another, uh, I, I, okay, I did make uh, lemonade out of lemons, but it, sometimes it's ridiculous. You know, I mean, uh, except now, if you ask me, the highest point, the, the pinnacle of 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 pride, or you know, in other words, the moment that I treasure most. Is the uh, in October 2018 the Invictus Games? Mm. When I knew there was this Invictus Games, I immediately had one thing in mind a year before it even started. I wanted to recite the poem to Prince Harry, so uh, I was invited to the you know Sydney showground where I recited it every day in their VIP room Mm. to various guests. So this is before the games, right? Yeah. And so I said they were saying nice things about me. I said, if you mean any of that, I do I have a chance to do it for the opening night. They said, like zero? Okay. So I knew I, I had no chance. You know who did it?
4: Who?
3: The premier of New South Wales, Gladys. Oh. It was it was woeful. Oh no <laughs> And and not only that, there was music playing she didn't know the poem. She was trying to read it. It's fluttering in the wind. And it, it was embarrassing.
2: That's, it was, a, that's it, a great injustice, I think.
3: You know. Okay. So anyway, that was that. So for the next uh, seven, six days, I recited it uh, three, four times at the VIP lounge. You know. I saw David Beckham was there, but uh, I didn't make any effort to see him. And on the final day, no, final day was Saturday, right? And the, the day before was a Friday, the chairman, another uh, chairman, the, the big boss and the girl who the woman who got me that gig said uh, we want you to we want to have a serious meeting with I said, Tomorrow at the ANZ Stadium on the fifth floor, we want you to recite it, but not a word before the poem, not a word after the poem. In other words, shut up do it and fit <laughs> off. So I, I I I felt like saying, Why don't you, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. do something but I didn't know. I I just kept my cool. Mm. That midnight I called them and said, Now you told me I had to be quiet. Would you mind if I put some music underneath it, the music that my son had written? Mm-hmm. Unlike the song, there's no barge to count, so you gotta feel your way through, you know. So the moment came and there was no mention of Prince Harry, whether he would come or not, okay? And there was no, okay. And it started, there were two speeches, and then there was a break. And then there was going to be another speech, myself, and another speech. But instead, they canceled one of that, they called me, and as I walked on, they played the music, and, uh, and I... And I got turn around on, on the left-hand side, about uh, 10 steps away, there was Prince Harry. And so I did it. At the end of it, he walked towards me with his hands outstretched as if though he were going to hug me. And his eyes were so big and round, I had never seen hmm. an eye that big in a skull. And, 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 and it, it was damp. And uh, and uh, so I broke his hug and shook his hand so that the world didn't see a white prince hugging a black man. And uh, so he kept saying, that was so emotional. I've never heard anything so emotional, et cetera, et cetera. And, and then I was trying to tell him that I had a letter in my pocket from his father that he wrote in 1981 before he got married. <sighs> because I sang for... Uh, Prince Charles in Adelaide, which was Adelaide's first uh, first ever royal command performance, yeah. and and I, and uh, and what had happened was after that command performance, uh, there was my I couldn't take my wife and kids to for the performance, so when I first met talked to Charles Prince Charles, he said I told him I'm so sorry my family couldn't come. He said Where do you live? in? he said I live in Sydney. Oh, I'll be there playing polo. If you could be bothered, if you could be bothered, uh, do bring them. So I went there and took my kids, and we were standing there. You know, it's good to be black; You could see us at the distance, and he came towards he came towards us, and uh, and he started uh, talking to my wife and complimented her on her husband singing. Just then, my daughter, who was nine, said, him, um, do you have my daddy's record?" He says, "I don't have I don't have one, but I would love one." So I sent him one, and uh, and and he replied, and with a lovely note, and saying that uh, my comments have made your uh, made you, you family more tolerant of your singing. <laughs> oh, beautiful! That's a wonderful beautiful. Thank Thank so,
2: That's so a
1: wonderful. Anyways,
3: so anyway, I, so I don't know. Is there anything else you want to talk about?
1: No, I, <laughs> I think, think, we I, think uh, I think we've I think we've got everything we need. No, to- no, no, no,
3: no, no, no. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You can. You can. Uh, I talked to you about Invictus. You know, Invictus is a poem that that should have been on the radio every morning during COVID. You know, Invictus in Latin means "No matter what, never surrender, never surrender." It was written by a man, Ernest William Haynes, and uh, he had he was young when he was twenty. He lost he was about to lose both his legs because he had TB on the bone, but he said no. He said, just take one. I want, I need the other one. And he lived another 30 years. He died before he was 50. And this is uh, Invictus, in English, not in Latin. But the, 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 the title is Latin, made, given by some other poet, not not Ernest William Henley. But this is uh, Invictus, whether you like it. I mean, you don't have to play it, but you can hear it. Okay, uh, Are you please, ready for this?
1: Yeah, right. absolutely. Please.
3: Wow,
1: sensational. Got sensational! Shivers down
2: my spine. That
1: is, a, that is that is a lovely way to finish uh, this chat with you. We've had we've had such a ball talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, you
3: know, I mean, isn't it a bloody shame a poem like that never gets heard yeah. when it yeah. should have been heard? Yeah, it is. No? You it have is. been
2: so gracious and kind, and uh, and thank you, thank you for answering our questions candidly and honestly. And uh, it's just been an absolute um, pleasure. No,
3: but you are you. sure, you sure, you got nothing else to ask. <laughs> oh, no, 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 I, I Can I brag? I want to brag. I mm-hmm. want to brag. My granddaughter, Isabel, is going to have a lead in a play called Snow in Midsummer, And uh, it's a Chinese play uh, adapted by the Royal Shakespearean Company. She's in Singapore. I haven't seen her for one and a half years. Mm-hmm. But I have sent her a, a, a butterfly, a special butterfly, uh, and uh, she doesn't know about it yet, but it will be given to her on Christmas Eve. Oh, oh
1: beautiful. That's lovely. That's beautiful.
3: Yeah, life goes on. Very good. Yeah. Okay.
1: Kamal, thank right. you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Uh, okay. Good Good luck, good health, and
0: uh, and happiness thank to you. Thank you.
3: And all I can say to you is Carpe Diem. Cheers you. today you are listening to food Bites
0: with Sarah Patterson and Kevin Hillier brought to you by cheese links bringing cheese and yogurt making to your kitchen cheeselinks.com.au wow that
1: is uh hearing you I've always loved his voice' his, his speaking voice mm. uh, just as I said it's it's rich it's full it's, oh, and, it's velvet. and hearing him do the Gettysburg address which I have heard and uh, and that invictus uh, it's just is oh, sensational.
2: That, the equivalent to me, you know, of honey being drizzled on a crumpet. Yeah,
1: no, very good. Very good indeed. I and, don't know
2: why I came up with that analogy, and, and, but it's just so smooth and so yeah. rich. Yep, um, absolutely. And that left me with goosebumps. Thank you so much, Kamal.
1: Yes. And uh, I can see why they got him to do that at the, at the games in the end.
2: He I persevered
1: think, um, and got... <laughs> He pestered him, but he got him to do it, and good on him.
2: I think you could do it well as well.
1: No, I don't have those kind of pipes. They're uh, they're very, <laughs> very special uh, to have that kind of depth in your voice. Now, now Friday food poll. I brought
2: up one of your favourites, Kevin. <sighs> Anchovies—they should it up be in everything, too. and the hairier the better, no, I say. No, no, put no. Put them on your no, pizza. No, no. no Definitely no. put them in your Caesar salad, which is the Friday food poll topic. Do you agree they belong in a Caesar salad? You don't think they belong anywhere, do you?
1: No, I don't. But I know they're in Worcestershire sauce, which is as near as I normally get to them.
2: I'll start, and it's uh, Rebecca first up, and I think I know which direction she's going to go. Mm-hmm. Being a vegan, uh, this is one of the harder things to replicate when doing a vegan uh, Caesar, but it is a critical part of the. Flavour profile.
1: Meryl Cooper says, yes, if they're in the dressing, uh, but uh, bit full on to chomp on, on the whole ones.
2: Lee Harrison says, yes, I knew there was something fishy about that Roman guy.
1: Glenn says, nay from me, Paddo. Yuck. I'm with Glenn.
2: Julie Brislin. No, if I'm making it myself, Uh, if it came out at a restaurant, well, no problem there. That's
1: interesting. Linda Masudi says, but of course, it'd be rude not
2: to. Yes, Jane Barnes, absolutely. Yay. Kate Stevenson, everything's better with anchovies. Yes. No, no, hang on. No,
1: everything's better with bacon, but Caesar salad is better with anchovies.
2: That's right.
1: That that incidentally, if you're wondering, (laughs) this is one of the joys of working from home, isn't it? Casting from home in uh, in your back room when the neighbour decides the to take the, the, uh, the chainsaw, chainsaw out. out. I'll just do the rose bushes, Dahl. Won't be long.
2: <laughs> yeah, they're only two centimetres away from the window. Don't <laughs> worry. old oh, croaky. Uh, hell. Look, hail uh, Caesar salad with anchovies. Without the flavourful magic of finely minced anchovies, uh. you might as well be eating a limp lettuce.
1: ZT of uh, Twitter says, uh, not a Caesar salad without anchovies and the gooey... Oh. Oh egg. yeah, you
2: got to have the gooey poached egg, and then dunk all the cos lettuce through it. Oh yeah,
1: yeah, I don't mind the gooey uh, egg on the on the cos lettuce. That's oh, not bad.
2: This is when it gets polarizing, Kevin. Yep, here we go. And Sam Newman wades in. <laughs> Everything acceptable, but definitely no croutons. Shane McGinnis says no croutons. That's like pizza without
1: cheese. Croutons are a must for a Caesar salad, and the more croutons, the better.
2: And Stephen Quartermain weighs in with, what's wrong with croutons? And
1: Sam replies, as we knew he would, even though a tomato is a fruit, you wouldn't put it in a fruit salad. Ding! Yes. Just like bits of bread in vegetables and anchovies, dumb the fare down. He's got a point. He's got a very good point. He had me when he said... Even tomato. though tomatoes are fruit, you don't put it in a fruit salad.
2: And I'll let you dive straight into Wayno's response. Yeah,
1: just stand by on the chainsaw. <laughs> um, the, uh, the Simpsons had it right when they said you don't win friends with salad.
2: Yeah. (laughs)
1: Especially when it has the salty sliver of grossness in it. This little salty sliver of grossness in it. (laughs) A Caesar salad is almost tolerable as a culinary repast. It has Worcestershire sauce in it. For a start, that's enough as it is made from anchovies anyway. Mm. Uh, Why then add the demon fish to it Mm. and ramp the yuck yuck factor up to 11? Anchovies have a place in the world. They can add amazing flavours to so many dishes. Mm. He's he's sort of going in and out here, Wayne. Uh, But they should never be able to be detected by people Um. with a sense of taste or smell. Good point. Yeah,
2: because he puts them in his lamb.
1: Yeah. They smell like you... (laughs) (laughs) Stand by with the chainsaw. They smell like your cat farted out some three-day-old Whiskers seafood cocktail. And look even more vile than that. I couldn't agree more. They're hairier than a 104-year-old Italian nonna. (laughs) (laughs) and uh, just a salty hand grenade of violence that pops out now and again to ruin your taste buds for the next fortnight. The Caesar is okay as salads go, but with this little disgrace... Uh, to the culinary world. In it, it becomes an abomination that would not be served at Guantanamo Bay as it would be against the Geneva Convention. Well done. Well done, mate. Nice one. Yep. Nice one. Uh, And that is... (laughs) More
2: coffee mug quotes in
1: there. Goodness me. Well, Sam's got a coffee mug quote, I reckon. Uh, Just because tomatoes are fruit, you don't put it in a fruit salad.
2: Absolutely. I was just going to say, talking about Wayne's aversion to anchovies in their whole form, he does cut little slits in his lamb roast and he and puts, puts him them in. in. And uh, the, the great thing about anchovies... Also, when you put them in a fry pan for yeah for pasta and so forth, they dissolve. So people will never know you put anchovies in them, but it will oh, give a beautiful salty taste.
1: I'm sure I've eaten them a million times without knowing, and that's exactly how I'd like to keep it.
2: I love them in their whole form. No, 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 no. I would, no, I would no, eat no. a pizza completely no, covered in anchovies, and no, like I say, the hairier the better. for me. Absolutely
1: not. No, love little, it. Hairy little things that make squeaky noises belong in the Adams family TV show. I love TV the crumbly,
2: show. salty texture. No, no,
1: no, no, no. That's another food bite. It's done and dusted. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to Kamal for all his time. Yes, thank it was fascinating you for being so gracious. Yes. Uh, uh, one more to come before Christmas. We'll uh, talk to you then on Food Bites with Sarah Patterson. Thanks to our very good friends at Cheeselinks, mm. cheeselinks.com.au.
0: Thanks for listening to Food Bites. Check out our Facebook page and Twitter for recipes, tips and all the latest news. That's Food Bites with Sarah Patterson and Kevin Hillier. Brought to you by cheese Links, Bringing cheese and yoghurt making to your kitchen. All you need to know at cheeselinks.com.au